our studies, we continue that this morning. We're looking at, we're going to turn the page, literally and, and figuratively, from chapter 4 to chapter 5 in our confession, from the doctrine of creation to the doctrine of providence. So in one sense, we are turning the page and addressing a different doctrine, and yet at the same time, we need to recognize that this is a necessary companion doctrine. And in one sense, we can't study creation apart from studying providence, nor can we study providence without studying and understanding the doctrine of creation. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him uh, to help us understand His, his Word and all that is uh, contained therein. Now let's pray. Father, we are thankful, thankful that you have given yourself to us in the person and the work of your Son. You are a mighty God. You are a good God. You are a God who is worthy of our praise, of our attention, our adoration, and our obedience. We pray that you will help us as we seek to, uh, to look to your word this morning, as we seek to use the, the help, the tool of our confession of faith, that you will give us an understanding, give us to us a, a greater appreciation for your works of creation and providence, uh, a greater comfort and rest in your wisdom and in your goodness. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to look today at paragraph 1. This is in chapter 5 in our Confession of Faith. And in a sense, to set this up, I want to remind you, we looked at this several weeks ago, but we'll look at it again in our Baptist Catechism. In our Baptist Catechism, we see in question 10, the question is, what are the decrees of God? And of course, the decrees of God, we discussed and looked very carefully at those things in chapter 3 in our Confession of Faith. The answer to the question, the decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he hath foredained whatsoever comes to pass. And then there's a very important next question. How doth God execute his decrees? So in the mind of God, from eternity, he has decreed whatsoever will come to pass. And the question is, how does he do this? How does he execute those decrees? And the answer is very, at once, both simple and profound. God executeth his decrees in the works of creation and providence. So when we think about the doctrine of decree, we need always to think in terms of both creation and providence. Then question 12 asks, what is the work of creation? Then we have a definition. The work of creation is God's making all things of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. Well then, skipping ahead, just two questions. Question 14, what are God's works of providence? And here we're going to have a very very short, succinct definition that even our children can, can memorize. God's works of providence are his most holy wise and powerful preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. See, the reformers understood, our reformed forebears understood from the scriptures that the doctrine of divine providence was a necessary feature, it was a necessary corollary to the doctrine of his divine and eternal decree. So God not only has made the world, but he actively governs this. Now, in your own recollection, what would we call a religion or a philosophy that said God made the world, but he does not govern it? Deism. 
Exactly right. It's kind of like the, the idea of the cosmic watchmaker. He's, he's made it, he wound it up, and then he's hands-off from there. But the Reformers from the Scriptures understood that is not so. That is not so at all. God has not only made the world, but he governs everything from the least to the greatest. He continues actively to sustain, to rule, to govern, to oversee his creation in every respect. One of the footnotes you'll see, and, and, and I'll read the, the, the paragraph here in just a moment, but one of the footnotes that you see for paragraph one in the chapter on divine providence is from Job chapter 38. And there we read, The Lord said, Thus far you shall come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. And they looked at this, even in the book of Job, and see, this is God governing his creation. Not only has he made the seas, but he governs the boundaries of even the waves of the sea. And then, of course, in Hebrews chapter 1, one of the other footnote, in verse 3, he, this is Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What we're considering today in paragraph one is really the definition of divine providence. It's, it's the definition. So that's the title, Providence Defined, here in paragraph one. But I want to look at this under three headings. One is the foundation. The foundation of God's divine providence. How do we think about this? The foundation or the basis of this? Then, secondly, the extent. How far does God's divine providence reach? Of course, the most straightforward answer is everywhere. We'll look at that in some detail. And then the end or the goal of divine providence. So let's look at the paragraph. Paragraph 1, chapter 5. <clears throat> We confess the following. We believe God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, to the end for which they were created, according unto his infallible knowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. The first thing we notice, the foundation of the divine providence, the, the, the ultimate foundation of, divine, of the doctrine of providence is the goodness of God. It's the goodness of God. When we think about providence, that we, we should have, we play this kind of a word association game, we, we ought to train and condition ourselves when we think about providence immediately to think about the goodness of God. Inseparably. We need to think about the goodness of God. Now, there's a slight modification in the text, and we've pointed out as we've gone along, we've sought to point out where there are differences between the Baptist Confession and, let's say, Westminster or Savoy. In both the Westminster Confession and the Savoy Confession, this begins with God, the great creator of all good things. The Baptists changed this to God, the good creator. Are, are, are the Baptists downgrading? Are the Baptists seeking to use language to describe God that is less superlative? 
that is less grand, less glorious. What do you think their point might be? Why do you, why do you think that there might have been a change there? Emphasizes goodness. Yeah. They're making a, Matthew? It's not so much that, but they, they're wanting to just be very consistent in their language. Because we go back to chapter 1 and chapter 3. We look at chapter, or, I'm sorry, chapter 2, describing theology proper, describing God himself. He's described as good. Then we see in chapter 3, on the doctrine of the decree, the goodness of God being a necessary portion or necessary a plank in this doctrine of God's decree. It is his goodness which is the foundation of his providence. They're not diminishing in any way the superlative nature of God. What they're wanting to do is show a consistency in the language, and they're wanting to highlight an attribute of God. Um, God is certainly great. He is great in the sense that he is most wise, he is most holy, he is most just, he is awesome and to be feared. But when we think about the categories of theology proper, it is his goodness that they wanted to highlight. Jim Renahan summarizes it this way. He says, the idea is that providence is a genuine expression of the fact that God is, in his essence, good. When we think of divine acts in the world, we must consider them as expressions of God's goodness. The idea of goodness appears at several places in this chapter. We can look ahead at paragraphs 4, 5, and 7, for example. This is intentional. In order to emphasize that all the acts that take place in this world relate to this attribute of God, there is no form of dualism allowed in Christian theology. God is good, and all his acts partake of his goodness. That's an important idea, isn't it? There's no sense of dualism in a Christian worldview. What do we mean by dualism? What's meant by dualism? Yeah. Yeah, this is the George Lucas theology, right? You have the dark side of the force and the light side of the force, and they're, they're constant intention. You just never really know which side's going to prevail. But this is not how we understand the doctrine of providence. It is Sometimes when we think about that, don't we, even in our language, we will say, well, providentially, this happened. We, what we mean by that is something good. We're, we're trying to use a, a Christian version of lucky. We mean, this was, this was really fortuitous. This was really serendipitous. We'll say this was providential. But it was also the blowout on the highway was providential. You know, our bank account getting hacked was providential. You know, losing... Um, a loved one was also providential. And all of them very good. All of them from the good hand of God. So there's even more, though, laid upon this foundation. With the goodness of God fixed in our minds, we then can observe his, what the, the, how the confession articulates this, his infinite power and wisdom. And then it goes on to say, by his most wise and holy providence according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will. 
But, but saints, if we don't have fixed in our mind the goodness of God, then will it be a comfort to us that he has infinite power and wisdom? You know, think about this. With all the talks of, of artificial intelligence and all this, this AI stuff and, and all the, the speculations and contemplations about what it might do uh, for good and for the benefit of humanity, but then also the warnings. What are the downsides? What are the potential pitfalls? What are the dangers of such a technology? Because we know inherently AI is not good or evil. It just is but it is according to the minds of men on which it's built and, and, and growing and established. But with God, this is, not, this is not the case. We have an infinite, wise, holy, infallible, free, and immutable God. And all of those things are rooted and grounded upon his Remember, we, we confess a God who is simple. He is not the sum total of these individual component parts. God just is good. God is wisdom. God is eternity. So in Isaiah 46, another one of the footnotes that we see in the confession at this, at this paragraph, beginning in verse 10, Declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. So the Lord here, through the prophet Isaiah, saying, Even the calling of a bird, even the calling of a man, is according to God's providential rule, that God governs all things, but he does so according to his goodness. Psalm 135 and verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on the earth, in the seas and all the deeps. I've mentioned this before. We heard an interview several years ago uh, by uh, someone at a car, uh, a Christian author, and, and she described the loss of, of their son, young adult son. Um, battled mental illness and drug addiction and other things, and there was still some mystery at, at, in his death. Um, to what degree was it accidental? And the question isn't answered in this age. And she made a comment that I thought was very helpful. She said, the doctrine of providence would be of no comfort to us at all if we did not believe that God is good. To believe that God is all-powerful. That's no comfort unless we believe God is good. To say that God disposes and governs everything, well, that's not really a comfort if we believe that God is malicious or unpredictable or malevolent toward his people. So the foundation of this doctrine must be the goodness of God. And so that's why the, the Baptists made that subtle change, and it was not in any way to diminish their view of God by saying he's good rather than great, but it was to highlight and emphasize that this is the foundation of the doctrine of divine providence, is the goodness of God. And saints, may we be comforted with this. In, in ordinary life, these ordinary daily uh, disappointments that happen are according to the goodness of God. But in those extraordinary days of life, 
when it feels like the proverbial wheels have fallen off in, in your home, with your children, with your marriage, with your job, with your finances, with all these other things, do we believe that God is good? Believe that everything that happens, we can't just shrug in, in a simplistic way or in a um, an empty way and say, well, just everything happens for a reason. What's well, true, but that's not a sufficient answer. Everything happens according to the good purposes of our most wise God. Let's consider here next in the confession with respect to the definition of providence, not only the basis of it or the foundation of it, but the extent. The extent. Because here's the other thing. The doctrine of providence would be of no comfort to us, number one, if we did not believe that God was good, but also if we did not believe that God governed everything. We could say, well, God is a good God, but bless his heart, he's limited in what areas he can govern. Some things are just simply out of his hands because, you know, the free will of man and so forth. There's some things God just can't do. Well, of course, where would we find comfort there? We need both the reality and the certainty of God's goodness, but also the reality and the certainty that he governs everything. Now, I want you to notice there are four words that are used together, and this is intentional. So God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things. Before we look at these four specific words, notice the symmetry between creator and governor. God is the good creator of all things, but he is also the upholder, the director, the disposer, and the governor of all creatures and things. Now, there's, there's two reasons that the language that's used like that, or the language is used in this way, is twofold. One is, is to show us in, in, a, in a technical way what we confess about God's governance. But, but firstly, it's to make this distinction between the creature and the creator. One of the reasons that we can say that God truly, providentially rules all things is because he's not part of this creation. He's not governing from the inside where he is bound and limited in the same ways that we are. God exists outside of his creation. So not only are we not deists, we are also not pantheists or panentheists, believing God exists inside of his creation. One of the hallmarks of, of various pagan religions is a belief that God really is just one of his creatures. He's just part of creation. And we reject that. God God exists outside. He is ase. Remember, he is independent of all that he has made. He is wholly without need of man or any of his creation. So that's the first thing, is we notice this distinction between the creator and the creature, but also it highlights the language that's used. Notice the, the four verbs. God, by his infinite power and wisdom, doth uphold, direct, dispose and govern all creatures and things. These are, these are technical words. <clears throat> They're intentional. They're chosen very intentional. It's technical theological language. Uphold, direct, dispose, and govern. I've mentioned several times that Richard Mueller has a, 
a dictionary that's a good helpful reference to you to have on your shelf, the dictionary of Latin and Greek theological terms. And in that resource, he points out that the Protestant Orthodox saints formulated this doctrine of providence using these four categories, these four specific words, and that it shows that God's sovereignty extends to preservation, support, government, and direction of all things. This is what he says. God preserves all things in being, supports their actions, governs them according to established order, and directs them toward their ordained ends. So it is not sufficient just to say that God moves the pieces around the chessboard. It is that God upholds them. By the very word of the power of Christ, he sustains all things, including his enemies. The very breath that the blasphemer has to curse God is a product of God's ongoing creative act. Not in the sense of creating this man again and again and again, but upholding him, sustaining him. Matthew 10 and verse 29, our Lord Jesus said, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus is not here teaching only that God knows the number of the hairs on your head, but that he caused them. He is the author of all life. He is the sustainer of all life. We saw that in the text from Hebrews chapter 1, that it is by the word of his power, the word of the power of Christ, that all things are held together. Paul teaches the same in his letter to the Colossians. All things consist at their atomic level, the smallest level we can conceive of. Things are held together. They consist by the word of the power of Christ. He not only governs all things, not only does he direct but he upholds them. How does this shape, then, how we think about evil, the reality of evil, the presence of evil? Now, we said when we looked at the doctrine of God's decree that God is not the author of evil. He is not the author of sin. And yet God is the first cause of all things. And so that even evil is used of God to accomplish his good purposes. So this is true at an individual level. When we see things go badly in a a day or a season of our life, this is the goodness of God. God is working out his holy purposes even then. When we see this corporately, nationally, communally in various ways, God is working out his good ends even as he preserves and upholds and directs and governs all things. You know, as we were there at Thanksgiving with my my parents, we're sitting around and observing 
grandchildren, great grandchildren, cousins, and the whole the whole crew. And and my my dad kind of looked around and he and he, and he kind of speculated out loud to me. He said, "All this goes back." He looked at my mom. All this goes back to her saying yes. What would have happened all those years ago? What would all would be different? She'd said. And then, and, and then he went on to say, well, it seems like there's a, I think he said, higher power at work or higher purpose at work. Yeah, it's, this is divine providence. And I was already thinking about this Sunday school lesson, of course, in my head as I'm talking to my father about these things. Um, but God governs everything. Even our individual choices, God uses. He upholds, he directs, he disposes, and governs all of those things. John Owen makes this statement. He says, such is the nature and condition of the universe that it could not subsist a moment, nor could anything in it act regularly unto its appointed end without the continual supportment, guidance, influence, and disposal of the Son of God. The things of this creation can no more support, act, and dispose themselves than they could at first make themselves out of nothing. The greatest cannot conserve itself by its power or greatness or order, nor the least by its distance from opposition. Were there, were there not a mighty hand under them all and every one, they would all sink into confusion and nothing. See, just as nothing in this world could make itself, nothing in this world could govern itself, could dispose itself, could uphold itself. This is the extent of divine providence is everything. It's all things, from the least to the greatest that not even a sparrow would fall to the ground, nor is the greatest of the kings of men outside of God's disposal and governance. Of course, we, we mention this almost every week in our, uh, our time of corporate prayer when we pray for those who are in civil authority. We pray according to the confidence that God holds the heart of the king in his hand, and he turns it like a river, river whithersoever, Ever he would have this king to go. The mightiest to the least. And of course we can go through the Old Testament and find illustration after illustration after illustration, but one of the most uh, dramatic ones is King Nebuchadnezzar, who famously or infamously stood on the high wall of his house one evening, stood on the roof and just surveyed his kingdom and and thought, man, what a mighty, great king am I. Look what I have done. Look what I have built. Of course, you know the story, right? Nebuchadnezzar found himself immediately um, removed from his stability of mind, his sanity. And he spent seven seasons, seven years perhaps, in complete madness living as a beast in the field. Even his reason was taken away from him because it is God who upholds and sustains even our reason, 
even our ability to string together a, a coherent thought comes from the hand of God. So when we consider our enemies, when we consider the blasphemies, when we consider the, the evil and horrific things that they say and do, none of that is outside of the reach of God's providential rule. But nor is it outside the scope and the foundation of his good purposes. We have to have both of those things in our, in our mind. The providence of God depends upon his goodness, but that would be of no comfort to us that, well, God is good, but he just doesn't control everything. Or he controls everything, but he isn't good. And see, we can still face that nagging suspicion in our mind, sometimes hampered. Even as mature believers, there's that dark recess of our thinking that, that, that wonders, is God really good? I know he's good generally, but is he good in this specific circumstance? Or we might find ourselves wondering, is God really in control of this? Is he really upholding, directing, disposing, and governing this circumstance, this particular matter? In order for us to find comfort, then our answer needs to both of those questions. It needs to be a hearty amen. Yes, he does. He is our good God who controls, upholds, and governs all things. But to what end? That's the last thing I want to look at briefly this morning is to what end? What is, what is the goal of divine providence? So we find this here articulated, I think, very clearly in, in our confession. Picking up uh, right there in the middle, by his wise and holy providence to the end for which they were created. This is, means all creatures and things according unto his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. What is the purpose? What's the end? What, what, what should be the conclusion as we meditate upon the doctrine of God's providence and the reality of that doctrine being worked out in time and space, the end of that, the goal of that, is the praise of God. It's the worship of God. And specifically, praising his, the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. Now, that's not a, uh, that, that, that list is not limiting. We don't look at the doctrine of providence and think well, this is only for the glory of his wisdom only for, the, for his power, only for his justice, or only for his infinite goodness and mercy. This is a representative. It's for the praise of God's whole person. All that is God, we are to praise. Jeremiah Burroughs, <clears throat> this, uh, that wonderful little booklet of his, or, or not little booklet, but a small book of his, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Many of you have read that. If you haven't, you, you should. In there, he says, there is infinite variety of the works of God in an ordinary providence, and yet all work in an orderly way. We put these two together. For God, in the way of his providence, causes a thousand, thousand things, one to depend upon another. There are infinite several wheels, as I may say. And, and wheels, he means like gears. 
as I may say, in the works of providence. All the works that ever God did from eternity or ever will do, put them all together and all make up but one work. And they have been as several wheels that have had their orderly motion to attain the end that God from all eternity hath appointed. We indeed look at things by pieces. We look at one particular and do not consider the reference that one thing hath to another, but God, he looks at all things at once and sees the reference that one thing hath to another. Chris Thomas Watson or Thomas Botson also described providence in terms of, of the gears of the watch. And, and some wheels turn contrary to the others. And it appears that you have multiple wheels on a watch that are turning one direction, and these others are turning a different direction. It seems like, how is this going to work? And yet the watchmaker knows exactly how all the parts function together for a common, unified good. And as we think about that, we think about the wisdom of God to see things that we cannot see. To understand the thoughts that, that are above our thoughts, the words that are above our words, the actions that are above our actions, a power that is incomprehensible to us, a justice that we could never define in human terms, a, a goodness that is, that is utterly eclipsed by the best of mankind, and a mercy which exceeds our comprehension. We look at the doctrine of providence, and we marvel at that. We worship God accordingly. I'll close there. We'll look at the next <clears throat> several paragraphs over the next few weeks, uh, but, but have these things in mind as we define providence. This, this really is, if we, if we don't get this, working out the particulars of divine providence will be tricky. Uh, we, we're likely to stub our toes and... Um, struggle to understand some of the things, particularly as we look next week at the first causes and second causes, if we don't have fixed in our mind the foundation of this doctrine, which is the goodness of God, if we don't have fixed in our mind the, <clears throat> the extent of divine providence, that, that nothing, absolutely nothing, not one random molecule in all of the universe, not one thing is outside of his sustaining, upholding, and governing power. And also, that all that we observe, all that we cannot observe, all that happens in this world is for one divine purpose and end. And that is to manifest, to display, to reveal the glory of our God in worship and in praise. We'll close there. Uh, any, any questions about the definition of problem. Yeah, I think it's it's the the emphasis again is the reason they, they changed from the word great to good is to emphasize that aspect of God's character. Because this, this is the foundational principle. If, if we don't believe that God is good, then this doctrine would not be of any comfort to God's people. Uh, and if you go back and look and just survey in your own mind, survey the history of Israel. 
and think about the ways in which God dealt with his people. All that he governed, all that he disposed, uh, from him leading, of course, one of the, the, the greatest illustrations of divine providence is the life of Joseph. But then we look that this was far beyond just the life of Joseph. This was God's means of getting his people into Egypt for 400 years. And then, of course, calling them out of Egypt by the leadership of Moses, by the divine or by the, the mighty hand and outstretched arm of God himself. And all of those things were displaying ultimately the goodness of God. And his, so I think the word, the, the modifier infinite goodness is just to put a strong exclamation mark on that particular aspect. Because all these other things really flow out of understanding God's goodness. <clears throat> Interestingly enough, and I, I didn't address this, but I'll, I'll mention it very quickly, as we think about reading the confession sideways, <clears throat> if we go back to chapter 1 and paragraph 6, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scriptures, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. This phrase, either expressly set down or necessarily contained. This is important because the doctrine of providence one of those doctrines that's necessarily contained. You won't even find the word providence in your Bible. And yet the doctrine is certainly there. Uh, the doctrine is, is, is all over the Scriptures, and it is a necessary consequence of studying the Scriptures. So, for example, when you read through the life of Joseph, a necessary consequence of reading through that is the doctrine of providence. You have to have a, a sense of God's goodness, of God's wisdom, of God's power, and of God's governing all things. And of course, at the end of his life, or end of his, after his father's death, Joseph, dealing with his brothers, famously said, what you intended for evil, God intended for what? Good. For good. To bring about this salvation, to bring about this rescue of all these people. And that included Joseph's time in prison, He's being left for dead. He's being falsely accused of rape. I mean, all the things, you can make the list on and on and on, of all the things that Joseph endured and the, and the betrayal of his own brothers, the loss of time with his father, all of those things, the accumulated effect of all of that, Joseph was still able to say, this was all according to God's good Absolutely. I mean, if, if God is not governing everything, then if God is going only governing things in, in a moment, but he doesn't know what happens next, uh, which is why the, the language in paragraph 1 specifically mentions uh, is infallible foreknowledge. Is infallible foreknowledge is necessary for any 
any problem. Yes. Yeah, it does. And, and um, I could direct you to a couple of additional uh, lectures on that specific topic that I found particularly helpful from James Dolezal. But dealing with this issue of, of evil and recognizing God who is the first cause, and yet he is not the author of evil. <laughs> mm -hmm. Or I think about in, in that Acts 6 and the stoning of Stephen. Well, that didn't end so well for Stephen. But did God accomplish good from it? Yeah, undoubtedly. And, and the scriptures are, show us that. Um, and ultimately, God may have used that as, as the beginning of, of conviction for the Apostle Paul, who was there present. And, and certainly to the end that Paul was later humbled by the fact that he considered himself a murderer for his participation in it. And yet God brought it brought about good from that. So we'll consider that over the next couple of weeks um, as we think about the means that God employs, we think about his him being the first cause of all things and yet not the author of evil. How do we reconcile those in our minds? So we'll we'll consider that over the next couple of weeks. Well, let's, let's pray, and we will give ourselves to preparing for worship. Father, thank you that you are such a merciful God. You are a good God. I, I pray that you will teach us, Holy Spirit, to meditate upon the goodness of our triune God. I pray that this will be a comfort to us in affliction, that this will be an encouragement to us in times of, of joy and apparent success, that you will humble us and recognize that it is you who are the author of all these things. And in the seasons of our affliction and hardship, that we, we will be reminded by your word and by your spirit that you are indeed good and that you are accomplishing all things for the good of those who call upon you, that you have as your ultimate purpose our worship of you which is for our good. It is for our, our blessing and benefit to draw near to our God in whom we have our life and our being. We ask this in the name of Christ.